The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zolsdorf with another podcast. We welcome as our guest today the Missale Romanum, and more precisely, the Second Eucharistic Prayer. In the last podcast, we looked at the Roman Canon, the First Eucharistic Prayer, in the New Translation, and now we're going to drill into the next one in line, the Second Eucharistic Prayer. In the last podcast, we compared the lame duck translation, as I call it, of the first Eucharistic prayer or Roman canon with the new and approved and improved, in my opinion, translation. The idea here is to get these texts of the new translation off of the page, if by chance you've read them, and then into your ears so that you can get a real sense of the differences that are coming down the line. Now, the second Eucharistic prayer is in part based on a reconstruction of what was widely thought to be the canon or anaphora of St. Hippolytus. Hippolytus was improperly elected by some as an antipope in 211, and then later on martyred in the company, uh, they say, of the true bishop of Rome, St. Pontian. This is in the time of the emperor Maximinus Thrax. Uh, The poet Prudentius says that Hippolytus was pulled apart by horses, uh, which may may be an invention. It may be true, of course, but it may be an invention uh, because, of course, the saint's name has, uh, you know, the Greek word for horse in it, hippos. So, you know, maybe who knows. Anyway, he was a martyr, and this is how he uh, found his way into heaven. He was was, uh, perfectly um, orthodox from what I understand, but... Uh, he created the schism. You know, schism isn't quite the same as heresy, but I'll uh, I'll leave that f- discussion for another time. Now uh, we are dealing dealing here, therefore, with a with a Eucharistic prayer that was stitched together based on a reconstruction of what is thought to be the anaphora of this ancient writer. Now, an an anaphora, in case you don't happen to know what an anaphora is, an anaphora is, it's a Greek word, literally meaning a carrying back uh, in one sense or lifting up. And it's this lifting up idea that uh, makes it um, mean a sacrificial offering, uh, especially the offering made by a priest at the altar. And in an anaphora, uh, which is a text, a standard text, there are um, particular elements that always appear. Uh, for example, uh, there's always an invocation to raise up the heart, and uh, which, of course, we hear at the beginning of the preface, and the preface, of course, is considered to be part of the Eucharistic prayer. There is an anamnesis, another Greek word. It means recollection, like a, a memory, as in the, our phrase, do this in memory of me, which the Lord said at the Last Supper. Uh, there's an offertory section where elements are presented to God. Uh, there's a something called the epiclesis, which is the calling down, the invocation of the Holy Spirit. 
and there are the words of institution, which we call also the words of consecration, which contain the words of Christ by which the bread and wine are consecrated when transubstantiation takes place. Now, uh, as I say this, of course, I'm I'm remembering at this moment that back in uh, 2001, I think it was, the Vatican said that an ancient anaphora used by some Assyrians and some Chaldean Christians, the anaphora of Adai and Marai, uh, was valid uh, for use. This is part of an ecumenical uh, venture that they had with the churches um, that were not in communion with the Holy See, uh, which used this ancient uh, ancient anaphora that does not have the words of institution in it. And uh, this, has created, this has created not a little stir. Um, some authors uh, wrote about um, you know, why this is fine. For example, I can think of Robert Taft, who was a Jesuit who taught for many years at the Pontifical Oriental Institute in Rome. Um, There, uh, however, another fine scholar, Father Uwe Michael Lang, um, put together uh, as editor a book of essays and pieces about the problems that that, that surround this approval of an anaphora, the anaphora of Adai and Marai, which lack a consecration formula. And by the way, those Assyrians or Chaldeans, which are in union, who are in union with Rome, they do insert uh, an institution form into this ancient prayer. But the, if memory serves, the Holy See said that this was uh, valid anyway, uh, because the churches that were using them have an orthodox faith about the Eucharist and the priesthood, and because um, as they perceived it, um, the elements of the consecration or institution form, even though they're not like literally right in it, they are scattered throughout the prayer. Um, so it's they were saying that it's valid. Now, I personally, I think that this needs to be revisited a little bit and rethought, but I'm digressing. Anaphoras uh, have this, you know, these different elements. Uh, including an institution narrative. Now, um, about the second Eucharistic prayer that we're dealing with here, um, based on the so-called anaphora of Hippolytus, um, which is found in uh, editions of the apostolic tradition. The apostolic tradition, once upon a time called the Egyptian Church Order. You may see it referred to that way. It was discovered in the 19th century uh, in Egypt, and it's attributed to this Roman anti-pope and martyr, our pal Hippolytus. Uh, the text, uh, interestingly enough, was discovered in the form of a palimpsest. A palimpsest is a parchment that has had all of its text, all of the ink scraped off so that it could be recycled, so it could be reused for some other text. But when you scrape the ink off, you see, it leaves a shadow. It leaves it like a ghostly little stain of a text, an older text behind the newer text. And uh, sometimes this can be reconstructed. Uh, For example, I think this is how we managed to recover after many, many centuries of it being lost, uh, the great Roman orator Cicero's um, Tusculan Disputations, philosophical work. 
anyway, we have this apostolic uh, tradition in Latin on this palimpsest, and I think there are also fragments of it in Greek in the ancient um, apostolic constitutions, um, which itself is you know probably dating around. Well, I don't know. It very goes back to the D to K for parts of it, uh, which I think dates around the year 100. So there are very you know ancient elements in that work too. I'm digressing again. So our so-called anaphora of Hippolytus had itself to be you know reconstructed and then um, worked up into a critical edition. Now, part of the difficulty with the text and many of these ancient texts, is that the people who reconstruct them had to apply some kind of subjective, you know, subjective work on them and make their own decisions about what was there in the gaps. And so we really don't know in every case if in these critical editions we have what the author actually wrote or not. We just don't know. But the second Eucharistic prayer was based on elements of this reconstruction. So basically what they did is they took elements of this old of this ancient text through a filtered through a reconstruction and then rearranged them and pasted them together so that they would the order of the elements would more closely follow the order of the elements in the anaphora we call the Roman canon. So, you know, there are some little little problems with this thing. Um, but, okay, well, look, let's move on. There are a few things that you want to keep your ears open for. I'm going to read the first. Uh, the first thing I'll do is read the lame duck translation, which is now in use, and then we'll get to the approved one. A little Latin at the beginning and end, too. But first, there are some elements that are common to all the Eucharistic prayers in the new translation that are going to be different to your ears. Now you'll note the differences, for example, in the consecration forms. They are more accurate. They stick to the Latin. For example, the priest says, take this and eat of it. And that's just, not just eat it, but eat of it. And then he adds, for this is my body. It stays closer to the Latin. In the uh, consecration form for the precious blood, we hear, uh, about a chalice, and not just a cup, which is a bit of a more you know everyday or banal word. Now some will object that Jesus didn't have anything like a chalice, which you know kind of sounds precious in our ears and probably should. You know Jesus didn't have a beautiful golden chalice; he had a pottery cup, and therefore so should we, as if those people know what Jesus used. Right? Uh, anyway, we uh, are not in the first century. Uh, we are not Jews from Galilee who are out there on the road hauling stuff around or using someone else's things in an upper room. Uh, we have had over 19 centuries to reflect on what the Eucharist is. It's probably okay to have a vessel which reflects our belief that what is inside it is the most precious thing in the cosmos and the most important thing in our lives, the very blood of our Savior shed for our salvation. I think it's okay to refer to the vessel as something that's precious. 
like a, use a special word, like a chalice, instead of a cup, out of which you might, you know, give some juice to a little kid. I think this uh, is, um, however, the cup, the people who like the cup, if um, I remember in the acclamations that are after the consecration, one of them uh, in the New Translation does say, uh, when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death, O Lord, until you come again. So people who really think that the cup is a better word can take solace in that acclamation, uh, which is an option, uh, according to what you know, people do in their parish or what the priest wants to do. Um, in any event, another common element is the statement, uh, the mystery of faith. Uh, this is no longer, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. It's just mystery, the mystery of faith, reflecting the Latin, mysterium fidei, pure and simple. Also, in the, uh, at the end of the Eucharistic prayers, in the doxology, uh, before everybody has the great Amen, uh, the priest uses um, through him and with him and in him. Those conjunctions are in there. And then after that, the word order is going to be a little bit different. Now, I think the most hotly debated change in the translation for the second Eucharistic prayer was the choice to stick more closely to the Latin about the dew of the Holy Spirit, rore sanctifica, right? Make holy, therefore, these gifts we pray by sending down your spirit upon them. And in this new translation, it says, like the dewfall. A controversy swirled around this literal do of the Holy Spirit business. Uh, some bishops, one in particular, um, sort of, shall we say, ran down the proposal that we should stick with this, this image, this biblical image. I've written uh, several blog entries about this do of the Holy Spirit business, and I will refer you to them uh, for my extensive comments. All you have to do is Google WDTPRS and Dew of the Holy Spirit uh, and find those comments. Uh, but in the new translation, uh, the bottom line is that they preserve the concept and the image of dew, and I think that's the best approach rather than just leaving things out like the old translation, the what I call the lame duck translation does. They just left stuff out. Um, it's better to include it and then you know, explain it, explain the imagery or the changes in sermons, help people get into what the prayer really says. Help them get into what it really says, rather than dumbing it down. So let's now hear the two prayers without delay. There'll be a spot of Latin fore and aft. Vere sanctus est Domine, fons omnis sanctitatis. Hec ergo dona quesimus, spiritus tui rore sanctifica, ut nobis corpus et sanguis fiant, Domini nostri Jesu Christi. Qui cum passioni voluntarie praderetur. The second Eucharistic prayer in the older translation, still now in use. The Lord be with you, and also with you. Lift up your hearts we lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. 
Father, it is our duty and our salvation always and everywhere to give you thanks through your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. He is the Word through whom you made the universe, the Savior you sent to redeem us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he took flesh and was born of the Virgin Mary. For our sake, he opened his arms on the cross. He put an end to death and revealed the resurrection. In this he fulfilled your will and won for you a holy people. And so we join the angels and the saints in proclaiming your glory as we say, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Lord, you are holy indeed, the fountain of all holiness. Let your Spirit come upon these gifts to make them holy, so that they may become for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before he was given up to death, a death he freely accepted, he took bread and gave you thanks. He broke the bread, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which will be given up for you. When supper was ended, he took the cup. Again he gave you thanks and praise, gave the cup to his disciples, and said, Take this, all of you, and drink from it. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. It will be shed for you and for all, so that sins may be forgiven. Do this in memory of me. Let us proclaim the mystery of faith. I'll take option B. Dying you destroyed our death, rising you restored our life. Lord Jesus, come in glory. In memory of his death and resurrection, we offer you, Father, this life-giving bread, this saving cup. We thank you for counting us worthy to stand in your presence and serve you. May all of us who share in the body and blood of Christ be brought together in unity by the Holy Spirit. Lord, remember your church throughout the world. Make us grow in love together with Benedict our Pope, name our Bishop, and all the clergy. Remember our brothers and sisters who have gone to their rest in the hope of rising again. Bring them and all the departed into the light of your presence. Have mercy on us all. Make us worthy to share eternal life with Mary, the Virgin Mother of God, with the Apostles, and with all the saints who have done your will throughout the ages. May we praise you in union with them and give you glory through your Son, Jesus Christ. Through him, with him, in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours, Almighty Father, forever and ever. Amen. The Second Eucharistic Prayer in the New and Approved Translation, not yet in use. The Lord be with you, and with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and just. It is truly right and just, our duty and salvation, always and everywhere to give you thanks, Father most holy, through your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, your word through whom you made all things, whom you sent as our Savior and Redeemer, incarnate by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin. Fulfilling your will and gaining for you a holy people, he stretched out his hands as he endured his passion, so as to break the bonds of death and manifest the resurrection. 
and so with the angels and all the saints, we proclaim your glory as with one voice we sing, or we say, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. You are indeed holy, O Lord, the fount of all holiness. Make holy, therefore, these gifts, we pray, by sending down your Spirit upon them like the dewfall, so that they may become for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the time he was betrayed and entered willingly into his passion, he took bread and, giving thanks, broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body, which will be given up for you. In a similar way, when supper was ended, he took the chalice, and, once more giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. The Mystery of Faith I'll take the first option. We proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again. Therefore, as we celebrate the memorial of his death and resurrection, we offer you, Lord, the bread of life and the chalice of salvation, giving thanks that you have held us worthy to be in your presence and minister to you. Humbly we pray that, partaking of the body and blood of Christ, we may be gathered into one by the Holy Spirit. Remember, Lord, your church spread throughout the world, and bring her to the fullness of charity, together with Benedict our Pope and, name, our Bishop and all the clergy. Remember also our brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep in the hope of the resurrection, and all who have died in your mercy. Welcome them into the light of your face. Have mercy on us all, we pray, that with the blessed Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, with the blessed apostles, and all the saints who have pleased you throughout the ages, we may merit to be co-heirs to eternal life, and may praise and glorify you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Through him, and with him, and in him, to you, O God, Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, is all honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Et eos in lumen vultus tui admite, omnium nostrum quesumus miserere, ut cum beata Dei genitrice Virgine Maria, beatis apostolis et omnibus sanctis, qui tibi a seculo placuerunt, eterne vite mereamur esse consortes, et te laudemus et glorificemus per filium tuum Jesum Christum. Per ipsum et cum ipso et in ipso est tibi Deo Patri omnipotenti in unitate Spiritus Sancti, omnis honor et gloria, per omnia secula seculorum. Amen. Those were the present and future translations of the second Eucharistic prayer. And hopefully we'll be able to use the new one soon. Now, 
I want to go back to this whole business about problems uh, with the, the second Eucharistic prayer. Um, one of the problems is not validity. It is a valid Eucharistic prayer approved by Holy Church. There is absolutely no question about that. Uh, the problem that I have uh, with it is, uh, for example, some of the claims people make. You know, well, we really should use this instead of the Roman canon because it goes back to Hippolytus and it's therefore more ancient than the Roman you know, canon and therefore we should use it. Well, that's nonsense. Uh, first of all, the Second Eucharistic Prayer is an artificial patchwork by scholars, whereas the Roman canon goes back well before Pope Gregory the Great. Uh, St. Ambrose, who died in 397, quotes passages of the Roman canon. And uh, as I mentioned uh, above, you know, this whole business of the Reconstruction, um, you know, makes the, the text on which it's based in itself, you know, just a little, a little hard to to figure, you know, hard to be hard to be certain about. Also, I remember having a conversation with my good friend, Father Tim Finnegan, his hermeneuticalness of the blog, the hermeneutic of continuity. We talked about this a couple times. Uh, Father Finnegan pointed out uh, to me that scholars were now uh, questioning the received opinion of the provenance of the apostolic tradition attributed to Hippolytus. And, um, uh, for example, I believe there is a book, and you can look this up on Father Finnegan's blog. If you Google, you know, Hermeneutic of Continuity and Finnegan and Hippolytus, uh, you'll probably come up with a blog spot that will give you a reference to a book by some scholars, um, Bradshaw, Johnson, and Phillips, who... Are, explain that this work seems to be an aggregation of materials from different sources, maybe even different geographical reasons, uh, regions and from different periods. So um, we just don't know really what this thing is. And this is what the Second Eucharistic Prayer is based on, and they took pieces of it and rearranged it uh, so that it would follow more closely the order of the Roman canon, and so it's really kind of an artificial construction. So it's not older and therefore more venerable than the Roman canon, which we had in use uh, in the Roman Church for a very long time, and still have, of course, as our first Eucharistic prayer. Um, there is a uh, a little point about Hippolytus, by the way, if you ever get to Rome, here's just a little trivia for you, if you want to have a little interesting little adventure, side trip. Uh, when you're in Rome, uh, near the Campo dei Fiori is the huge chancery building of the Holy Roman Catholic Church, the Cancelleria. And uh, that's where all the tribunals are, by the way. The Signatura, where uh, Archbishop Burke, hopefully soon to be Cardinal Burke, um, is the prefect, and there's the um, the rota there, and also the sacra penitentiaria apostolica, which deals with uh, matters having to do with the internal forum, and confession, uh, of indulgences, and so forth. But built into that building, uh, or the chancellor cancelleria actually was built around this building, this ancient church called San Lorenzo in Damaso. And it's right in the heart of town. And 
inside, if you go in the main door and then turn to your left, there's a statue there of marble of an old guy seated in a curial chair. And this is the copy of a statue that's in the Vatican. And it's thought to be Hippolytus. The original statue was found in the 1500s in the cemetery. I think it was a cemetery in the Via Tiburtina. And on the side of the statue is a list of works of Hippolytus in Greek. And written on the chair itself, um, there is a paschal cycle. In other words, um, something describing the list of the movable feasts that depend on the dating of Easter. But I am digressing again. If you're in Rome, uh, go to San Lorenzo in Damaso and take a look at this interesting statue. You'll be looking, perhaps, into the very face of the guy who uh, who gave us, maybe gave us the apostolic tradition on which the Second Eucharistic Prayer is based. Now, uh, I think you probably have figured out from what I'm saying that I don't use the Second Eucharistic Prayer very often, um, unless I'm concelebrating, uh, which I don't do very often. I frankly think that um, concelebration should be safe, legal, and rare, uh, preserved to particular occasions, and not a priest's regular practice. Um, Priests should say, I think, the priests should say their own Masses and even help each other to say their masses. If they have to serve each other's masses, that's fine. Sometimes it's practical or, or you know, good and beneficial for, for there to be a concelebration. Uh, certain events, certain occasions, you know, it, it's, you know, perfectly right and fitting, and, you know, we shouldn't, uh, shouldn't resist that. Uh, in the new form of Holy Mass, the post-conciliar, you know, Novus Ordo, ordinary form, what I think is really wrong is when pressure is put on priests to concelebrate or when they're being like forced to or if they are looked down on for not wanting to concelebrate. I know priests who do this. They practically, you know, bully you about concelebration or they look, you know, down on you or, or you know, pressure you to do this. And I think that's really wrong. I think it's frankly it's reprehensible. If they want to concelebrate, fine, let them concelebrate. But you shouldn't bully or force or look down on priests who don't want to concelebrate, who prefer to say uh, Mass on their own. And uh, as a matter of fact, priests uh, should help each other out so that they can you know, say Mass on their own. Okay, back to the second Eucharistic prayer. That's what this podcast is about. Um, how did we get this, this Eucharistic prayer anyway? Um, there are lots of Eucharistic prayers now. Uh, when in the Roman Church we had only one for more than sixteen hundred years, but since nineteen seventy, there are, you know we've got another dozen or so Eucharistic prayers. So what's this all about? Now, if you want a good explanation, I'm going to refer you to a piece that was written by Dom Cassian Folsom, who's now uh, the uh, superior at the revived. Abbey in Norcia in Italy, uh, which was the birthplace of St. Benedict. Some years ago, he wrote a piece for the Adoramus Bulletin, I think. It was originally written for them. Uh, it may have been written for someone else, but anyway, Adoramus Bulletin has it on their site, and it's uh, called From, you run, From One Eucharistic Prayer to Many, How It Happened and Why. Now, in a nutshell, um, 
in the 60s, after the council, some scholars such as Hans Küng started pushing for a reworking of the Roman canon, and the uh, various people started composing new prayers. Uh, the Dutch bishops even went so far as to implement, without permission, uh, their own kind of you know Eucharistic prayer. It, it subsequently obtained permission after the fact. Uh, you know, nice, huh? You know, break the law until you get your way. You know, that's how we got communion in the hand, and that's how we got altar girls and so forth. But I suppose that's one way to do it. Uh, in any event, um, there were this there was this push to have new Eucharistic prayers and uh, to have a little variation. So I think at the heart of it, and Cash and Folsom goes into this, at the heart of it, I think because the the canon wasn't going to be recited silently anymore, it was going to be out loud, some people thought that, you know, congregations, people would get bored, tired of hearing the same thing all the time. So they wanted, So this was for the sake of variety. Um, other people had other uh, more sophisticated arguments. Uh, some said, well, maybe it's too Roman with all the, the Eucharistic prayers, too Roman, the Roman canon with all those Roman saints and so forth. Other scholars, like, you know, the aforementioned Kung and uh, Cipriano Vagagini, uh, who wrote a, an important book about the Roman canon, argued that uh, the Roman canon was poorly written, it was poorly constructed. Uh, it was even defective, according to uh, Vagagini. And um, uh, that was one of the reasons why they wanted to rewrite the Roman canon at first and then started proposing other prayers, and we need to have this variety. I think another very, very important element in this was the just the spirit of the time. You know, we're imbued now with the spirit of Vatican II in those halcyon days of change, of rupture with the past, with discontinuity, inspired in part, I think, by the you know prevailing spirit, secular spirit of the of the sixties, and also to extent within the church by modernism, you know the rejection of the transcendent in favor of the imminent, the exaltation of man's own power for self determination, uh, the rejective the rejection of the past. In a, in a break with the past, in a spirit of progressivism, uh, that, you know, and that shift, that shift of, from the transcendent and vertical to the horizontal and imminent, so many different things influenced, I think, the, the, the thinking at the time. And so make, to make a long story short, Paul VI told um, Father Bunini and company, that the concilium should get to work. And so they cobbled up some new prayers from ancient texts. Uh, we'll hear about the third Eucharistic prayer one of these days in one of these audio projects. But as I have explained, the second Eucharistic prayer was put together from elements rearranged from an ancient text from a author who we're now not quite sure about and uh, from a place we're not quite sure about. But it's usually attributed to Hippolytus, the canon of or Hanafra of Hippolytus, going back to perhaps as early as the third centuries, as some scholars say. So, um, read Cashin Folsom's piece on this, and you can expect that if I'm around, you're probably going to get the Roman canon when it's up to me, and we're saying the new form of Holy Mass in the ordinary form. 
But now you have heard the new translation of the second Eucharistic prayer, and you can make your own determination about whether you like it or not. Ce sont des intellectuels qui vivent entre terre et ciel. Ils ont le don providentiel de la pensée. Ils voyagent dans de vieux bouquins qui datent du temps de Charles Quint, ornés des couleurs d'Arlequin, choses insensées. Ils connaissent tout l'univers de son endroit, de son envers, changeant en un grand palimpseste la voûte céleste. Ils collectionnent les papyrus qu'ils lisent parfois dans l'autobus quand ils vont au marché au bus acheter de l'emprunt russe. Ce sont des intellectuels qui se retrouvent dans des chapelles que se disent-ils, que se disent-elles des choses profondes. En discutant, ils se méfient de toutes les grandes philosophies Aucune vraiment de leur suffit, âme vagabonde. Arrive la confusion des langues, l'évocation du Big Big Bang. Alors tout tourne dans ses tangues, enfin du monde. Le soir, au fond de leur maison, sans trop savoir en quelle saison, tout en buvant une tisane, ils pensent qu'ils sont des âmes. With that, I'm going to wrap this up. Please do visit at the blog, wdtprs.com, Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com, and you can uh, find my comments on the Dew of the Holy Spirit there, and you can participate in ongoing conversations. And uh, also, um, if you have a hard time telling people you know, how to find the site, you can just Google Father Z, or you can also look at Father Z online, F-A-T-H-E-R-Z online. Dot com. Maybe a little easier to remember than Whiskey Delta Tango Papa Romeo Sierra dot com. So until the next project, please pray for me as I will for you. Mais oui.